Jordan Syatt, welcome to the podcast. Michael J. Vicanti, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited. Jordan R. Syatt, it's our podcast. Rico's looking at me like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Just got off another podcast which with actually two personal trainers, from one from New York, one from Boston. They were uh, struggling with social media content, talking about the industry being so overly saturated. And I went right in. I was like, it's not saturated. It's not. I was like, on the on the top layer, there's a lot of coaches in there. But you go one layer lower, there are not a lot of good coaches. You go another layer lower, there are not a lot of good coaches posting content. Go another layer lower, there are not a lot of good coaches posting good content on a regular basis. I was like, when you get to that level, it's not a saturated industry at all. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And and we've always we've always said that. Yeah. Yep. For for that reason as well as the fact that no matter how saturated it gets, demand is infinite. Not infinite, but but demand is massive. The potential consumer is like there're just so many people in the world. But let's t- tell me about your ribs, Jordan. When are when are we going to get these things to at least 85% so you can compete? I've got, I've got a fractured ninth rib. So it's, you know, I've been doing acupuncture. Mm-hmm. So this, this dude reached out to me. He saw my story, uh, who does acupuncture in New York. And he was like, Hey, you know, I don't know if you've ever done acupuncture or not, but I do it and I'd love to help you out. And I've never done it before. I've never liked the idea of someone putting a lot of needles in my body. Um, but he, I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll try it. Like I can give the carnivore diet a try just for a YouTube video. Why can't I try this? So, yeah. And I actually got a little kickback. Some people on, on Instagram were like, oh, this is so pseudoscientific, blah, blah, blah. I was like, at least I'm going to try it and see how it feels. And, uh, I've had two sessions so far and I mean, it's been interesting because as soon as he was done for the remainder of the day, both times, more mobility, less pain. Amazing. After I went to sleep and woke up the next day, it was back to about baseline. But it's interesting how once he's done with it for the remainder of the day, and he does it at 930 in the morning. So the whole day, more mobility, less pain. And we've only done two sessions. So he recommended three times a week for four weeks. So I was like, cool, well, I'll give that a shot. And if it if it helps, amazing. If it doesn't help, at least I've tried it. So that's where I'm at. And the thesis behind that is acupuncture for enhanced recovery would be more blood flow to the area for a faster recovery? Correct. That's that's the main main benefit that he's spoken about is you get much more blood flow to the area for a faster recovery. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know if it's actually going to work. I have no idea. The interesting thing is I do sort of have um, like a before acupuncture and after acupuncture because I broke my rib about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Right. So I broke it about a month ago, uh, took a week off training, went back. And then about two weeks after I went back, I heard it again. This and now this time I'm trying acupuncture. So we'll see if in the same time frame that I heard it in the same time frame from the first time to this time, see if it heals faster or more uh, or better. We'll see. So I have no idea, but I'm excited to give it a shot. Yeah, you can compare. Um, what I'm most into about all of this is your competitiveness and like the grittiness of, I just know 98% of people, maybe more, if you're four, five, six, seven weeks out from a competition like this and find out they have a broken rib, they're automatically rescheduling to next year. Like the thought of competing, uh, you know, basically from behind with an ailment. So less training leading up to the competition and potentially, or probably like most likely you're going to be hampered in some way to a degree, both mentally and physically, even for the competition. But you're like, screw it. I'm going to do everything I can to hopefully get myself in a place where I can compete and like, I'm going to train around it. I'm going to do conditioning. I'm going to get myself to the best version of myself with a broken rib that I can, because I want to compete and I want to do everything I can to win that mentality. And like pattern of behaviors just seems non-existent 
to me and and is is fun to watch. Thank you, man. I'm I mean, you've seen how I've fallen in love with jujitsu over the last year. But like having this competition date, it just it's fired me up so, so much. To and I, I'm doing like I hate cardio, but it's so funny. Like I've always I've always thought I hated cardio, but I've hated cardio when my main goal was to deadlift four times my body weight. My, I hated cardio and my main goal was maximal strength. But now that I'm focused on jujitsu and I know I need good cardio, cardio is the vast majority of my training right now. I've got a cardio, I've got a bike, like that's the vast majority of what I do. And I'm so into it. Like did I you, love did you it. Hate, did you hate cardio in high school when you were wrestling? No, I didn't. I mean, it was, when it, it was when brutal it workouts, yeah. but I love whatever helps me achieve my goal. Mm. Right. So whatever is helping me achieve my goal, I'm super passionate about doing. Mm -hmm. So it's so funny how that works. It's like, this is where I think your goal, whatever you decide your goal is, is plays such an important role in not only what you do, but how you do it and how you perceive it. Right. So for some people, if their goal is, is aesthetic based and they're like, oh, and I just hate cardio. It's like, maybe that shouldn't be your goal. Maybe your goal should be something performance-based. Maybe your goal should be something else. I think for me personally, having competition makes me my best self individually. Like having a competition coming up and whatever it is, just making a competition for something gives me the best opportunity to work my hardest, enjoy it the most, and uh, and turn out on the other end being the best version of me. Yeah. Well, there's only there's two options, right? Like if you can either change the end goal to make the the thing enjoyable which for you is like an, the assault bike or you can keep the goal the same and not do the assault bike exactly yeah like like those are the two options yeah you're exactly right nice man so feeling good man how about you how are you feeling i feel good i feel good did a push day today um how to go you've been liking push days recently yeah, push days have superseded pull days as my new favorite day. It was good. It was I I progressed on everything and uh and felt good and and was moving well and yeah, it was a good workout. Um the timing with Gary's workout was perfect because he texted me as I was walking out of the gym saying like, oh, "Hey, can, perfect. <laughs> can you train right now by chance?" and I was like, "Yep, as a matter of fact, I can." <laughs> you just FaceTime in the car? Yeah, well I I drove across the street to Holiday got that protein and carb and then got back in the car and yeah, did his workout on FaceTime from the car in the parking lot. And, uh, yeah, now here we are. I love it. So we're, we got another Q and a today, right? Yes, sir. We got some questions lined up. We had a great response to the first Q and a, so we're just going to keep hammering these. Yeah. Cause people loved it. Well, and we knew it too. After last week's episode, which if you haven't listened to double back there after this one, but we were both like, that was really fun. That was really good. Like that felt like really helpful content. And, uh, the response, uh, David, our, our audio engineer first texted me and he was like, man, you guys were, you guys were on, on that one. And then, you know, DMS and emails and everything were flying through. So we're really happy that everyone enjoyed that. And because of that, we're going to continue to pull from this question list. So, Ready? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> you look like you got something up your sleeve. <laughs> it's just a it's just a good one and it's something that you and I are both quite passionate about to start. All right. You just got that evil smirk on your face. <laughs> you know, like when there's like you look at like a seven year old kid who's about to like shove his sister's face into like her food or something and he's like got the <laughs> smile like he's about to do something bad. I'm like, Oh, what's this what's this about to be? <laughs> Does intentional weight loss for aesthetic purposes mean I am sold to diet culture? Oh, I knew that it was going to be something about this. I knew it. Yeah, there's that evil smirk. I get it now. Okay. All right. You want to start with this one? I'm, I'm going to start and here's how I want to start. I want to get on the same page with you and hopefully with like reality about what diet culture actually is because my absence of consuming fitness content outside of maybe like a, a select handful of people who I'm friends with mainly and, and then research. But outside of that, I'm not consuming like mainstream fitness content. And so I feel like I don't have a really good understanding. So I went to Google here and 
Oh, you prepped. Google. You prepped for this. You knew this was going to be a topic. I like it. I think this is the best starting point. I think you're right to figure out, all right, what is diet culture? We got to talk about it. What is it? Yeah. What And, and per Google, diet culture definition, uh, diet culture is a belief system that focuses on and values weight, shape, and size over well-being. Variations of diet culture also, also include rigid eating patterns that on the surface are in the name of health, but in reality are about weight, shape, or size. So based on that definition, th- that definition isn't my understanding of diet culture because I agree. I think that you should prioritize well-being over one, scale weight, who cares, two, shape, like Everyone is going to have a different shape for various reasons, some of which are within our control and some of which are outside of our control Um, and and size. Like none of those three things are more important than well-being. Correct. That that wasn't prior to Googling this. That wasn't my interpretation of what diet culture is. And maybe you can expand on uh, how that term is used on the Instagram. Well, so there's a, there's a bunch to this, right? So the first thing I would say is looking at that definition, because I think I've seen that exact definition on Google. Is that linked to an article? Is that definition coming from someone's article? Got it. Okay. So that's, I'm assuming the most popular article referencing diet culture, which was probably written between, was it 2018, 2019? Good question. It was written. This is on edrdpro.com. And the date of this publication was, is not listed. All right. Well, either way, I think it's important to remember, number one, this is, this is just a definition on one person's website. And I actually, I think it's a good definition. I think it's a, it's a good, strong working definition. I agree with it. The issue is there isn't a singular definition that everyone can come back to. And I think what we're seeing on social media is a lot of people misconstruing what diet culture is. Like one, what one person thinks is diet culture, someone else might not think is diet culture. So Mm. for example, if someone talks about losing weight on their Instagram, there very well might be someone coming in being like, oh, anything related to weight loss is diet culture. This is bad, right? And like, that's what I'm seeing on social media where people will be like, oh, this is just diet culture. Right. And, and I think it sort of flows into some people's political views and some people's stances on, on a variety of topics. But a lot of the people who, who are big on diet culture also talk about health at every size. And a lot of, a lot of the people who believe in health at every size, for whatever reason, think that your size literally plays no impact on your health, which is actually like really interesting for a number of reasons because. We could go into that for a second. That, that's my that's my interpretation of diet culture was I thought it was tightly linked to health at every size or the belief that body fat percentage does not have any bearing on health. Well, so I think what happens is I think a lot of people who are really big in health at every size look up to anti, like to diet culture and they're like, they are vehemently anti-diet culture. So I think a lot of the most vocal proponents of health at every size are also vocal proponents of being anti-diet culture. But I think, for example, you and I could be like not big proponents of diet culture, but also disagree with health at every size. So you and I aren't going to be going around being like, yeah, anti-diet culture, anti-diet culture. Cause not to mention like, what does that do? Like it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help anything. So a lot of the health at every size movement, they are avidly against and vehemently against any form of weight loss. So these are the people who are the most vocal about anti-diet and the most vocal about any form of weight loss being like good or okay and or intentional weight loss being good or okay. So I think it's an important word that has to be in there. Like any intentional weight loss is not okay. So I think that's where we see a lot of the anger and, and arguments coming out coming about using diet culture as that, as that, um, starting point. Um, but the reality is if that's the working definition of diet culture, I think it's, it would be hard put to disagree with that. Like I a hundred percent agree with that definition, but now we and, get into and, different and, subsets of it. And I think it's almost like a little bit of a straw man because unless someone is really struggling with like 
you know, mental health or, or body dysmorphia to, to an extreme degree or their relationship with like something. I would say the overwhelming majority of people agree with this statement. Like for someone to say, for someone to say, no, actually my scale weight is more important than my well being, And like truly believe that I, I think that's less than like one in 658 people. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. I don't think anyone would say their shape is more important than their well-being. I don't think anyone would say their size is more important than their well-being. I think, um, I just think there's a lot of, uh, 100% it's a straw man, but I see, I think most of the anger and most of the the stuff coming from people being like, oh, this is diet culture, this is bad, is mainly coming from the people who are coming from health at every size or think that any intentional weight loss is inherently bad. Okay. So, so let's use that is pursuit of an aesthetic goal that involves losing body fat. Bad. Is that bad? It, don't get me started on this. I'll, I'll go off. Like, okay. I mean, so, I, so I think any logical person listening to this is, is going to say, of course, it's not bad. Like, of course, I, I think we even spoke about this in the mentorship recently. There was one of the, in one of the Q and A's, right. Where yeah, someone was Andy. like, oh, shout yeah. out Andy. Andy brought it up and he was talking about how like he was feeling pressured from some people because they thought that it was bad to be focusing on intentional weight loss. I'm like, what are you talking about? Get out of here. All else equal, like there's a reason why to an extent and and basically let's just call it everything above 10% body fat. Let's just say that's, we're just setting that aside, which is the overwhelming majority of people. That's what we're talking about. For that population, anyone gaining muscle mass or losing body fat, and let's even go a little higher, like going from 30 to 20% body fat for a male, all else equal, is going to make you healthier. Like it, it's going to make you more aesthetic, but it's also going to make you healthier. And, and in that same vein, because I, I saw another post when we were doing a little research for that mentorship Q&A where someone was talking about body recomposition and then clarified in the caption, like oh, yeah. recomp recomposition can mean fat gain and muscle loss. Like there's not like a better or worse form of recomposition. I was like, no, 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 You know, unless someone has way too much lean mass and no body fat, right? And and okay, it's like one in however many people. It just doesn't exist. Um, we're we're dealing with people who aren't stage lean, basically. Like your average person, adding lean muscle, like total amount of muscle mass is strongly correlated with all cause mortality. Meaning, on average, the the more strength and lean mass someone has, the longer they are going to live. All else equal, um, and. We know that being obese or being morbidly obese are it, like it is a health risk. It increases your risk of a variety of diseases that kill us. So to like to become quote unquote more aesthetic, and we'll call that going from forty percent to twenty percent body fat and gaining some muscle in the process. That is an intentional pursuit of an aesthetic goal that also makes someone healthier. Yeah. You know, it, one thing that the health at every size movement I've heard say is to the effect of basically say, listen, your the amount of body fat you have doesn't determine your health. And well, that's wrong. Number one is like, if you have a very high body fat percentage, you're significantly more likely to have type two diabetes. You're significantly more likely to have heart disease. You're significantly more likely to have metabolic disease, all this stuff. Like it's very clear in the research, but let's just say you're right. Let's just for argument's sake, pretend that that's accurate, which it's not. They say, as long as you are moving and exercising, you can be very heavy and still healthy. It's like, well, yes, you can still be very healthy and moving and exercising is going to help that a lot. But that's like saying you could be smoking. And as long as you're exercising, like you could still be very healthy. It's like, yeah, there are some people who live to 90 years old and smoke every day and they exercise and it's great. But that doesn't mean that that's based on science. It doesn't mean that it's accurate for everybody, for most people. Not to mention, I think the most misleading part of this discussion is if you've ever worked with someone who's severely overweight, you know, it is very difficult for them to move. 
Like th- this is something that you don't understand unless you've actually either been severely overweight or worked with someone who's severely overweight. The amount of joint pain and back pain, knee pain, hip pain, the, the difficulty physically that comes with moving at when you're severely overweight is tremendous. And it puts mm-hmm. the body under a significant amount of stress, not to mention the mental and emotional toll that can take the mental and emotional toll of looking at walking up all the stairs and being like, this is going to be a very difficult task. So maybe I'm just going to stay here and not move. So yeah, if you are overweight, you have a very high body fat percentage. And if you still move and exercise a lot, then yes, you can still be healthy. But how likely are you to be moving and exercising a lot if you are severely overweight? You're just not as likely. So why don't we promote movement and health and exercise, even if it's also towards an intentional weight loss goal, when we know for a fact that someone going from 40% to 30%, 30% to 20% body fat is going to improve their health. Like I, it's mind boggling to me, not to mention, let's just talk about aesthetics. If your goal is to lose body fat because you think you'll look better then who the fuck is anybody to say otherwise, like do it. And maybe you'll learn through the process that you're happier with a slightly higher body fat percentage that instead of 17%, you're happier at 23%. Cool. Go for it. But don't let someone tell you that you're doing something bad because if they're telling you that, then odds are they're talking from their own insecurities and they couldn't do it without having a bad relationship with food. doesn't mean you can't do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Saying that is is pointing out an anomaly. Just yeah. because you can be healthy at a higher body fat percentage doesn't necessarily mean uh, that that is where you're going to be most healthy or that that is the best route. I, I will say one of the most encouraging things I've seen over the last six to eight months is a lot of people, I've seen a lot less noise, like a lot less people participating in like the extremist health at every size movement. Um, and a lot more people saying, coming back to me, DMing me being like, Hey, I really got roped into the health at every size world. And I gained 25 pounds because I was around people who were saying, just eat and gain weight. And now I feel awful and I'm ready to get back on track because I see that it was too much. So it's, it's, it's encouraging for me to see people being like, all right, I went there. I did that. They're wrong. I really, I drank the Kool-Aid too long. Now I'm ready to get back on track. It's like, cool. So people are starting to realize that this might not be the best movement. And for whatever it's worth, I think it's important to say, I think the health exercise movement started with great intent. I think the health of it started with the idea of like, listen, like let's not body shame people. Let's not hate on people for, for their body. Like I agree a hundred percent, but that doesn't mean that we should make up data and facts that aren't accurate about people being severely overweight, that it doesn't attribute to negative health outcomes. Yeah. To, to the extent that, that the movement is a battle against uh, many of the unrealistic body image expectations that are shoved in our face every day a hundred percent yep like steroid spray tan like photoshop photoshop exactly all of that um you know you don't need to to fight against those things which i think universally we agree are not good individually or collectively you don't need to go all the way to saying 64 percent body fat equals 18 percent body fat from a health perspective yep that was a hell of a one to start with. Cool. Yeah, I figured we'd do it when we had the most juice. Um, <laughs> the second question we got is, how do you handle clients who don't, by the way, when I'm picking these, I kind of like picking, you know, because there's psychology around coaching. There's kind of nitty gritty fitness stuff. There's um, high level topics going on in the fitness industry. There's specifics about business and improving your business. So let us know either in a review or in a message or in an email, you know, what you think of these episodes, what you think of these questions and feel free to submit questions for us. And feel free to submit a five-star review if you're enjoying it. (laughs) (laughs) We would love that too. We would love that too. How do you handle clients who don't check in and, and you have to keep reminding them to do so? So, uh, this, this is a good like online coaching question. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, if this hasn't happened to you, it will, because this is, this is a, a fact that a certain percentage of people you coach, and as you coach more people, you'll come across those who just don't check in, no matter what you do, really, right? Like you could, you could 
email someone every day. You could try to get them on the phone. You could nag them, which isn't something we recommend doing, but you could do everything in your power to get somebody to check in, whether that's their weekly check-in or if you have them, you know, you want them to send you daily emails, whatever your coaching system is, and they're not going to do it. Um, So the best place to start here is with expectations. Let the client know when you're starting, like, here is how everything works. Um, Here is how updates work. And I expect you to fill out your updates every week. Like if, if you miss a week, that's completely understandable. That happens. But, you know, you're an adult. I'm an adult. I'm not going to chase you down. I'm not going to email you every single day. I'm, I'm not going to keep peppering you if you're not filling out your updates. That's your responsibility. And setting that expectation up front, um, it's going to do a few things. One, it's going to make that person feel more accountable to consistently fill out their updates. And two, it's going to let you avoid a potentially uncomfortable situation that that I dealt with early on, which was someone didn't fill out an update. I sent them an email like, hey, you didn't fill out your update. Didn't hear anything back. The next week they didn't fill out their update. I sent an email like, hey, you know, is everything okay? What's going on? I, I know you missed a couple updates. That's okay. It's perfectly normal. But like, is there anything I can be doing to help? They don't say anything. And then I kind of back off because, you know, if I send a couple emails, what am I what am I going to do? I'm not your mom. I'm not going to like track you down at your house in a different state. And two months go by. And then that person's like, you know, why did, you know, I, I felt like you didn't even care about me. Why didn't you? And I said, look, <laughs> I sent you a few emails. You never replied. Like, I'm, I'm not really sure what else I can do. But by setting the expectation up front that you aren't going to chase someone down, um, you avoid that potentially uncomfortable situation in the future. Yeah, I think that's super important is the expectations are, they have to be set or else there's going to be issues. And even when you do set them, there still might be issues, but at least like you you have in writing, hey, you need to check in with me. I will not be chasing you down. I will not be coming after you. The other thing that I think is important to discuss here is why someone might not be checking in with you. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of potential reasons here, but I think something that happens, especially when you first start coaching or online coaching, if someone isn't checking in, oftentimes you're going to think that it's something you did, right? You're going to think that it's your fault, that you're a bad coach, that you're making a mistake. And that could be true. Maybe you suck. I don't think that's the case for the vast, especially if you're listening to this podcast. Um, Odds are, if someone isn't checking in with you, they're not replying to your emails, they're not checking in, they're discouraged and they're oftentimes ashamed and they feel like they let you down. So you have to understand if someone isn't checking in, they're probably not following the program and they feel like a failure. And this is most easily exemplified. And when people are doing well, they're usually emailing you. They're usually like lost two pounds. Like I increased my deadlift by 15 pounds and being consistent. But then if they go on vacation, they gain a couple pounds. They don't get back on track that week. They're finding it really difficult. They gain a few more pounds. They're down and they feel like they're letting you down. This is, you have to understand the psychology of a client. A lot of clients will come to you maybe after seeing a couple of your, your client success stories. And in their mind, they're like, I want to be a success story for this person. Like I want them to post about me. I want them to be proud of me. So they go off track six weeks in, gain a couple pounds and they start seeing themselves go back to old habits. They're not not checking in because you did anything wrong. They're not checking in because they feel bad. And you have to understand that. And that's how you can sort of ju- uh, adjust your approach to reaching out to them to make it more likely for them to get back on track. So one of the things that I would do is I would uh, record a voice memo and I would send it to them. And basically I'd say like, hey, an email I'd write, hey, I haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks. I attached a voice memo. Uh, I hope you're doing well. And the voice memo would say something to the effect of like, hey, I don't know if this is what you're going through right now, but if by chance you happen to go off track, if by chance maybe you've gained a couple pounds, you haven't been good with your nutrition, it doesn't matter. Like you're good. 
It's you can get right back on track. I'm here to help you. Even if you decide you don't want to do coaching anymore, you decide that this isn't for you. I'm always here as a friend, first and foremost. Anything you need, please let me know. The response rate to that was outrageous. And people were like, oh, I'm so sorry. I've just been so ashamed of myself. Thank you so much for that voice memo. I'm ready. Let's go. Like, let's hit it. And then they're back on track. I think a lot of people, a lot of coaches forget that coaching isn't just about giving someone a plan and expecting them to do it. Coaching is understanding the ebbs and flows of the process and being there to remind them that you're there for them no matter what. And a lot of times that will be enough to get them back on track. And the sooner you can get them back on track, the more quote unquote damage control you can do, the more they'll believe in their ability to succeed and the longer they'll stay on track and the better they'll do long-term. So if you can understand this right now, so if someone doesn't check in for a week or two weeks, then immediately you send that email or that voice memo so they get back on track rather than waiting three months. And 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 for whatever it's worth, I made that mistake early on in my career. Like I would wait one month, two months, three months. I'd still send their programs. I'd be like, hey, like I haven't heard from you. Hope you're well. And I'd send their program. But I, I didn't understand why they weren't checking in. And I, I resented it. Like I was like, oh, I was getting angry. I was like, I gave you the instructions. You should be checking in. You're an adult. <laughs> but- that was my ignorance from a coaching perspective. Like a good coach is going to understand that they're not avoiding you because they don't like you or you're doing a bad job. They're avoiding you because they're ashamed. So understand that as a coach and your response rate and your your um, success as a coach will radically increase. Yeah. And, and without that understanding and without that, you know, whether it's an email or voice memo, but that message, you're you're not going to have the person back on track because in their mind, they're thinking they need to battle back to where they were before they even reach out to you because they don't want you to know that they, in their mind, let you down, that they had a bad weekend, a bad week, a bad two weeks, that they've gained five pounds, whatever it is. Uh, a, a current client of mine, this this actually didn't happen, but he's been sending daily food logs. And for the last two and a half weeks, three weeks maybe hasn't really lost any weight. Um, and, and we're leading up to some big board exams that he had. And so I said pretty early, maybe two weeks out from them, like, I don't expect you to lose any weight during this time period. Maintaining during this time period is a huge win. If you have to miss a workout here or there because you're studying, if, if you need to prioritize sleep, like consistency over perfection here, that's what we're doing. And just the other day, he wrote me a note and he was like, something to the effect of, you're so much more understanding than other coaches or like other people that he's talked to, which is something you and I have talked about a lot, which is basically just like it's reality. It's it's having realistic expectations and communicating those to our clients. And and I think it's also a function of coaching more people and and being able to understand what what is what actual like good versus not great progress looks like compared to uh only having you know n equals one yourself someone who's loves fitness and using that as your barometer for what good and bad progress is yeah yeah i agree 100 percent. so hopefully that answered that question Number three here is from Renee, who's in the mentorship, um, and and she actually just said that she wanted to hear you and I riff about it on the podcast, so that's where we're putting it, which is mobility versus flexibility. I'm confused about the difference between mobility and flexibility and the purpose for each. Also, what's the best way to improve each and when you know which one to work on or if you even need to? Yeah. So this is a really good question. Um, the basic differentiation between mobility and flexibility is flexibility is passive range of motion and mobility is active range of motion. So what that means is if you have a client lying on their back and you stretch their leg to do a hamstring stretch, that's passive range of motion. They're not doing anything. You're doing the work for them and they're just you're they're just getting a stretch because you're doing it for them, right? And so you're testing their passive flexibility. Mobility on their on the other hand would be in this case, let's say that person is like standing straight up and they decide to do like a straight leg raise 
and they can control their body while they're leg, lifting their leg leg up, and you, you can see how much mobility or how much range of motion they get. Now that's more mobility. You could also see them do that. The difference between like. Um, adductor flexibility someone doing like a stretch they're stretching their adductors versus someone doing let's say a lateral lunge right so if someone's just going to do uh they're on the ground they're doing a split stance adductor mobilization if you don't know what that is you can google it or youtube it eric cressy i believe is the one who really popularized that mobility drill it's phenomenal uh, a split stance adductor mobilization is more of a flexibility style drill like you you increase mobility you can improve mobility from it but you're really testing your flexibility whereas if you do a lateral lunge you're also you're testing your mobility because you have to actively uh, you have to actively brace and stabilize and move through that range of motion. So mobility is more of a, of a functional assessment of your flexibility, whereas flexibility is more just you don't have to be quote unquote functional with it. It's you're just you're just going through how much range you have, but it doesn't matter how much range you have if you can't use it in a functional way, right? If you can't use it while you're actually moving. So that's where I think mobility becomes a much more important assessment in everyday life, just because if, if they don't have that mobility, it doesn't matter how much flexibility they have. And the reality is sometimes people can have so much flexibility that it becomes a danger to them, right? So we call a lot of these people, they're, they're congenitally lax where maybe they, they're, they're too mobile. They're hyper mobile to the point where they don't have enough stability to be able to maintain control in an active range of motion. So you have someone who maybe they're, they're doing a lateral lunge, but they don't have enough stability. They might have all the mobility in the world, but they don't have enough stability to control that lateral lunge to the point where either their knee or their hip or their ankle, something is at risk of getting injured because they don't have that stability. So for me, if I'm looking at a client and assessing them, yes, flexibility is important and passive flexibility is something you might want to look at, especially if someone is unbelievably restricted and very, very, very tight and immobile. Um, but generally speaking with my clients, I'm far more concerned with their overall mobility as opposed to just strictly their flexibility. Yeah. Sci Fitness crushed it. Um I, I don't even have much to add to that. Well, one one helpful way to think about the difference between the two, in addition to what Jordan just said, is uh, mobility has a strength component to it too. If you think about that that adductor stretch versus a lateral lunge, um, it requires strength to control that same movement through the range of motion. So, um, and and the last part, kind of like how to know if you need to work on like if you how to know if you need more mobility yeah so this is a good question and this is where i think you can use a number of different assessments just to see so for example a lot of people might not be able to get to depth in a squat right maybe they can't get low enough in a squat and if someone can't get low enough in a squat they might need more mobility right? But not always, they also might need more stability. So now we have to ask, what should we be trying to improve? Generally speaking, so so here's what I'd say. If, if you get someone who's just unbelievably tight, like you're trying to do a passive hamstring stretch on them and they just, they will not move. Like if they don't have enough passive flexibility, then it's impossible for them to have enough mobility. Like they just can't, if they don't have enough flexibility, then they won't have enough mobility. So if they're not flexible enough in their hamstring to be able to do a certain, to get a certain degree of, of, uh, movement in their leg, then cool. You got to work on their hamstring flexibility. You know that, um, but let's say you're looking at someone, they've got great flexibility and you're looking at their, their movements and it looks like they have great overall mobility, but they can't get deep enough in a squat. Well, now it's like, do you still need to work on their hip mobility? Do you still need to work on that? Or is there something else going on? And odds are in that case, something else is going on. So one of the best ways for me to differentiate a mobility issue between a mobility issue and a stability issue, especially for a squat, is you just put them on all fours, put them on the ground on all fours. And essentially, if you turned them 90 degrees, they would be in the, in the bottom of a squat position. Okay, so they're on all fours. Uh, each hand underneath their shoulder and each knee uh, directly beneath their hip, but then you push them back towards the bottom of a squat. If if you take that image of them and you flip it 90 degrees so that if they were standing up, then they're in a deep squat without any butt wink or any issues, then it's not a mobility issue. 
it because they have the range that it's there but if you see them, they, their lower back starts to round out. They can't get deep even when they're fully supported by the ground. Now you have some form of mobility issue because they can't do it even when they're fully supported by the ground. If they, if they can do it on the ground, if they're fully supported and they have enough depth in that squat, then, but they can't do it standing up, that's a stability issue. That means they need some more, either more core stability. Maybe they just need to improve their balance. Maybe they need to change their stance in order to get more, a wider stance in order to have a, a better balance and grip with the floor. But odds are, if you can put them on the ground and they can go through the entire range of motion without an issue, then it's not a mobility issue. It's a stability issue. If they can't go through the range of motion, even when they're supported by the floor, that means that it's a mobility issue. Stray cat just walked by my window here. We'll continue. (laughs) (laughs) What is the best way to measure calories burned? So don't calorie expenditure. (laughs) Don't number five. (laughs) Um, This, this is a good question. And I'm going to assume we don't mean your TDEE or your total daily energy expenditure, but uh, calorie expenditure through an activity, through a 45-minute cardio session, how many calories did I burn doing this strength training session? These are, I'm, I'm, you probably have a better pulse on this, but I feel like they're not as popular of questions as they used to be, um, which I think is a good thing. They're pretty popular. It's pretty popular. I, I can't do a Q&A without getting like a lot of these questions. Never mind. Um, there's there's three variables here, okay? We have how many calories you're consuming, we have how many calories you're burning, and we have your progress. And and you don't see the video, but Jordan and I are doing one, two, three on our fingers. And <laughs> as as we all know, if you can figure out two of three variables in an equation, you're going to solve for the third one. So which of those is easiest to to know. You explain this so well. Like God is super Thank articulate you. with it. Keep going. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, first, the technology to measure calorie expenditure doesn't exist. So whether it's a little uh, little flashing thing that says 287 calories on your Nordic treadmill, or whether it's a watch on your wrist that you know, they're marketing and saying that by your pulse or by your whatever, they can estimate calorie expenditure. That technology doesn't exist. Fortunately, tracking how many calories you consume and, and getting close enough does exist. That's just a, a, a simple habit that requires a little bit of time and a little bit of consistency. Um, tracking progress is also something that is within our control, right? And Obviously, we're going to have to work with averages because scale can go up and down a little bit here and there based on water, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But tracking scale weight over time and tracking waste measurements over time is going to solve for that progress component. So we have two of our three variables. From there, we can back into quote unquote calorie expenditure. And, And practically speaking, what you'll do with a client is assign them calories based on based on whatever equation you want, right? Estimate maintenance, whether it's a, a single number multiplier, whether it's like I use Catch McArdle times uh, times an activity multiplier in, in Mike's macros in my app to give maintenance calories for that. I know Jordan uses um, goal body weight times a number to, to come up with uh, fat loss calorie targets. Um, but pick a calorie intake and then track progress. And based on their progress, you're going to be able to, you know, if you think they're going to lose a pound a week, but after three weeks, they're down 11 pounds, you know, you and and they're starving out of their mind and and then, you know, you overshot. Um, But yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to measure calorie expenditure other than backing into it. Yeah. It's actually, it's funny because I, I recommend everyone download Mike's macros. Whenever people ask me on my q and I always like, yeah, like they're like, what calorie tracker should I use? And I was like, download Mike's macros, really good app. And it's funny because a lot of the 
people will DM me after they put their information and they get their, their calorie intake. They're like, well, his calories say something different than your calories. And I'm like, well, yeah, but he uses a different equation. They're like, well, which one's right? I'm like, fucking try it. Just try one. Like they might both actually be right. They might both put you in a deficit, right? That might actually work, but maybe one is going to be easier for you to maintain, right? And it's going to depend. So a lot of people get so hung up on, well, where do I begin? Pick one and try it. This is where a lot of people don't like to hear, try, this is all trial and error, but that's what coaching is. When, when you're a coach and you take away the guesswork for your clients, taking away the guesswork means that you're taking the information they give you and you're using the, you're experimenting. You're the one using the trial and error. It's like, okay, well, you gave them these calories, these macros, and they're not losing weight for four weeks. So it's like, all right, you know what? Well, let's, we're going to try these instead. Let's see how these work. And those don't work. So like, all right, well, you know, we're going to try these instead. It's like, all right, well, these don't work. So basically what that means is they're not following your fucking guidelines, right? It's like, it's not that the macros don't work. It's that they're probably not following it unless you're really screwing up with your numbers here. So it's all trial and error. And the coaching part of it allows you, the coach, to take that trial and error part and they trust you with that. But when people are just doing it on their own, it becomes like they get nervous because they don't have as much knowledge as a coach. So they get worried. They don't know if they're doing the right thing or not. So you don't need to worry about your calories burned as long as you pick one equation, you know exactly how much you're taking in and you measure your results. That's it. You look at your progress, you're losing weight, your pictures are improving. Your measurement's going down. Cool. Keep going. If you're too hungry, if it's completely unsustainable, cool. You can increase your calories and still be in a deficit. It's, it's that simple. It's not easy because if you're not very knowledgeable on something, then you're going to be second guessing yourself. You're not sure if it's working, but it's trial and error. It's the only way it's going to work. I think, honestly, I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from Martin Birkin when I was like 18 and following him, I don't know if he wrote this in an article or if it was an email back and forth. I think it was an article was basically like, listen, when you're going through the process of cutting and bulking and, and just doing this, like you're going to mess up. Like it takes you multiple times of going through the cutting and bulking process to find what works for you. And when he said that, I was like, oh, so I'm going to do a cut. I'm going to get super lean and I'm going to mess it up after that. And that's good because like, that's part of the process. The only way, if you think you're going to do your first cut and get however lean you want and just maintain that and you'll be good forever, like that's not how it works. Like you're going to go through a cut, you're going to gain body fat, you're probably going to gain too much body fat, then you're going to cut again, then you're going to have more strategies in place. And the reason that we're talking about this here is because you can explain this to your clients explain this to them. Like, listen, the goal right now isn't to get to the point where like, okay, cool. You reach your ideal leanest and you're good forever. The goal is to give you the tools and the knowledge and the ability to do it on your own. So you can work back and forth and trial and error to the point where you feel confident enough in your own ability to manage your progress. Mm -hmm. Well said. Let's hit, let's hit a fifth one here. I think we got time for it. Do you have a business mentor? I'm interested in hiring one. I'm an online coach. My, my biggest business mentor or the person who, you know, I, I, I consumed their advice kind of passively in, in what they were putting out. And then I had the opportunity to have more direct access to them and, and get more customized feedback was Gary and his his philosophies around marketing, around attention, around social media usage, around uh, content, but but really around people and and helping people for free and coaching people for free and just giving unlimited jabs without expectation. Uh, he is the the kind of person who had the biggest direct impact on my business and the person who I would call a business mentor. At this stage, I like I've internalized his messages. I understand them. And if I had a goal to like, you know, triple my business in the next year, those are the principles that I would apply to make that happen. Um, business isn't as high a priority for me right now as it has been in the past. So you're seeing less of that, but that yes, I've had a business mentor and, and it was him. Obviously, Gary has been a huge mentor for me as well. Uh, I'll give a little bit more backstory just based on, I hired my first business coach, I think when I was 23 or 24 and he was awful. 
and then I hired a second business coach not long after him. Uh, he was awful. And then I hired another business coach several years after him and awful. And uh, then I hired my fourth business coach and that's Pat Flynn. And Pat Flynn is not only uh, one of my best friends now, but also just an, an extraordinary human, but unbelievable business coach and business mentor. He was really the guy that um, he taught me a lot about writing. He taught me a lot about not just copywriting, but just writing, good writing. He, he, he led me in the right direction, gave me a lot of great books and resources. Uh, he taught me about email marketing, email campaigns. Um, Pat Flynn really took me and my mentality and my business to a new level. And this was back before I ever started coaching Gary. This was back in like 2015. Uh, then when I started coaching Gary, then he became another tremendously important and positive influence in my life, both in, in business, but also just in life in general. Um, and that's massively influenced my business. And uh, as of right now, I don't have any direct mentors, anyone that I'm like specifically learning from, um, at least not in business. In jujitsu, I would say yeah, I have a lot of mentors, but for business mentors right now, no. But I, I think I'm at a point where I've and the same same thing with with fitness. Like I, I interned with Louis Simmons. I interned with Eric Cressy. I learned from Tony Gentilcore. I learned from from Stacey Shadler and Kevin McCarthy and all these people. I, I interned and learned from enough people that now I sort of I have my own voice. I know it works for me. Um, I still hire coaches to do my programming so I can continue to, continue to learn from them. I, I I never stop learning, but I've also at a point where I'm comfortable enough with my own voice and persona and and fitness knowledge to continue moving forward with with progressing on my own same thing in business i know i'm confident enough in who i am and what i believe and what i do to continue progressing on my own but again like if business ever becomes a, a serious serious um uh goal of mine which i'm sure it will at some point then i'll probably hire a business coach or a business mentor because when i want to focus on something it it massively benefits you to hire out. If for nothing else, I think one of the best parts about hiring Pat Flynn was the accountability that came with it. Like, yeah, I paid Pat Flynn a thousand dollars a month when I did not have that much spare money. Like it was, I was not in the, the place where I could afford that, but I made it work. Um, and the accountability that came with spending that much money took my business to a level that I can't even begin to tell you. I worked so much harder because I had that accountability. So um, I also told that story because I went through three coaches that I didn't like before I found one that I loved. So I think part of the process is understanding you're not going to always have a, a coat. You're not going to, the first coach you find, the second coach you find, the third coach you find, maybe they're not a good fit, but through working with each of those coaches, I learned a lot. And I also ended up with the one that, that is a, one of my best friends forever. That's awesome. Which we can't end that without without saying, hey, if you want to join the fitness business mentorship, which basically this is what Mike and I run. This is this is what we do for coaches right now, which is we have a place that is very affordable, right? It's it's a it's way lower cost than if you're ever going to work with a one-on-one -on -one coach. It is a group community where you have a Facebook group and everyone's incredibly kind and encouraging, but we also have so many courses teaching you literally everything you need to know about being a great coach, program design, client psychology and motivation, behavior change, nutrition programming, strength programming, online systems and assessments, how to communicate with your clients. Like if you want to be a great online coach and build an online coaching business, this is it. Like go to fitnessbusinessmentorship.com and sign up because we're going to hold you accountable and you're going to learn everything you need to know. Well said. Sign up. Hope to see you in there. Jordan, this was a great podcast. This was good. I love it. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and we'll uh, see you next week. Bye, everyone.